All right, this morning we've been talking about favorites. So, who's your favorite preacher? Well, who's America's favorite preacher? You know, when I, I Googled that this week, uh, the most popular preachers in America, I got a variety of answers. I was uh, given the names of the preachers of the 100 largest churches in America. I found Time's list of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. I saw several well-known preachers had compiled lists of who they considered to be the top 5, 10, or 25 preachers. I even learned who the 10 richest preachers in the world are and who Rick Warren considers to be the top 100 preachers to follow on Twitter. But to bring it back home, if you ask the kids who come looking for my jar of peanut butter pretzels after church, I'm pretty sure you'll discover that I am their favorite <laughs> preacher. All right, And it's nice to be someone's favorite preacher. In fact, I wish I were everyone's favorite preacher. But that'll never happen for a variety of reasons. Obviously, most people have never heard me preach, even though my sermons are now on the Internet. <laughs> and there are lots of great preachers out there in big churches and on the air and in the media. Besides, there are many different styles of preaching, and we all have our favorites and our preferences. So it's okay to have a favorite preacher other than me. Just don't ask for a pretzel. Uh, <laughs> what's not okay is for there to be fan clubs in the church. To become so loyal to any one preacher or teacher that you refuse to let God work through another. And believe it or not, that was happening in Corinth. The church was fragmenting into different camps around different personalities, and it horrified Paul. So after a very Christ-centered introduction, referring to him by name nine times in nine verses, stressing the fact that we've all been called into fellowship with Jesus Christ our Lord, Paul opens the body of his letter to the Corinthians with a plea for unity. And this is our new study in 1 Corinthians. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same Judgment. Paul began by stating, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Because of Christ, and for His name's sake, we are to agree with one another. Now, that's not a new thought. You know, Jesus Himself prayed in his high priestly prayer that we would all be one so the world would believe who he is. You know, Christ's credibility 
is dependent upon our unity. He claimed to be the Son of God and said He had come to establish His kingdom. And if that kingdom is truly divine, and if He is really Lord over His church, then unity and harmony must prevail. Paul, therefore, exhorts us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to be of one mind, to be saying the same thing. He pleads that there be no divisions among brethren. Now, the word he used for divisions is a very graphic word when used in this sense. The Greeks used it to describe a tear in a garment or holes in their fishing net. Paul was saying, I don't want your garments to be torn. I don't want the church looking bad to the world in rags all tattered and torn because it's fighting all the time that reflects on Christ. I don't want there to be holes in your nets. You know, how can you effectively be fishers of men if your nets are full of holes? How many times have you heard someone say, Well, who's right? You all don't agree, so how can you expect me to believe what you're saying? There are not to be holes in our nets. Paul says, no, we've got to be made complete. We've got to be knit together. That's what the word actually says. Our tares must be knit together. Our nets must be mended. Christians should be knit into one body. If we're to be an effective, attractive body, we must be united in spirit. We must be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Now, I don't believe that means we can't have a variety of ideas expressed in the church. It takes different ideas and views and approaches to challenge and motivate one another. But we are all to share the same mind. What mind is that? Well, Paul spells it out for us in Philippians 2, 1 through 8. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are to share the mind of Christ. And if we are in fellowship with Him, we will share His mind, His attitude. And what was that? It was a willingness to empty Himself. 
to get self out of the way. To take on the form of a bond servant. To be obedient, even to death on a cross. That's the mind we are to share. It's a self-sacrificing, bond-servant kind of mind. That is the unity of the Spirit that the world is to see expressed in the life of the body. But it won't happen if a church is divided into bickering parties. And that is what had happened in Corinth. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized by me. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul had been informed that there were quarrels among the Corinthians. In fact, as we'll see, things had gotten so bad, they were actually going to court against one another. They were even refusing to eat together in church suppers and were looking down their noses at those who had what some deemed to be lesser gifts. Of the Spirit. Now, Paul's going to deal with all of that in this letter. But first, he tackles the divisions that are centered around personalities in the church. Some were saying, I am of Paul. Others were saying, I of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Or, I am of Christ. The church in Corinth had divided into four parties, four exclusive groups that apparently felt the other three were an heir. Now, they coexisted. The church hadn't yet split into four denominations, but there were tears in the garment and holes in the net. Now, the first group was most likely the charter members, and they belonged to the Paul party. You know, Paul had been the founder of the church, and no doubt every time something came up, there was a group who'd say, well, now I remember when Paul was here, or, well, Paul didn't do it that way. You know, they had the inside track on the way things used to be. They were the watchdogs who, who barked every time the word change was mentioned. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to hold on to something that's good, that's right, that meets needs, that doesn't need to be changed. I, I don't believe in change for change's sake, or that change itself equals progress. But to remain locked in the way things used to be can cripple a church. 
and to assume that someone who spoke years before had the final word on a subject can be a little ridiculous. I'll never forget the ceiling in the church in Kansas. And between the beams was some kind of fiber board that had decorative borders stenciled on them. They looked nice, but they were dark. And they made for a very dark sanctuary. Well, the preacher who had rebuilt the church after a tornado had said they could never paint the ceiling. That if they did, the panels would absorb so much paint that they would fall down. Well, for years, the congregation had been sitting in the dark. And a new young preacher from Illinois suggested they paint the ceiling white. After being told why it couldn't be done, he sought the opinion of some professional painters, and they convinced the board that it could. Likewise, the Paul party felt that the ceiling would fall down. If anything was done that Paul hadn't authorized or initiated. And besides, they just liked Paul. And they liked the way he did things. They liked his simple, direct style of preaching. You know, Paul didn't try to be overly clever or too persuasive. He was actually more of a teacher than a preacher. He didn't want people to be swayed by him, but by the truth of the gospel. And the Paul party, no doubt, appreciated that. But there was another group in the church who didn't like it. They liked a more powerful style of preaching, so they formed an Apollos party. Now, Apollos, you remember, was a young preacher who came to Corinth after Paul. He was an eloquent man, mighty in scriptures. He was a dynamic, powerful preacher who could really move people. You know, some may have responded to him like the woman who gushed. I almost weep every time I hear my minister pronounce that blessed word, Mesopotamia. <laughs> I'm sorry, I read that and I couldn't pass it up. <laughs> they may not have been that bad. But they were probably more emotional in nature than the Paul party. And they had formed an Apollos fan club. They only wanted to hear him or someone who preached like him. They, they just couldn't be moved by any other style of preaching, and they probably stayed home when they knew someone would be preaching without the flash and pizzazz of Apollos. Now, I, I can relate to this because I'm really not an Apollos. And I know my style of preaching doesn't appeal to everyone. But you know... We ought to be able to get something out of any message that is biblical in content. In fact, Paul wanted to make sure that if someone was moved through a message he delivered, it was the message that moved them, not the messenger. Now, some in Corinth liked Paul's approach. Others liked Apollos. And some liked neither. They were the legalists who formed the Cephas party. Now, Cephas was the Jewish name for Peter. And the Cephas party was probably made up of those 
who said things had never been done right in Corinth. That Paul was always talking about grace and throwing out the Jewish heritage. And Apollos, he was too flowery and not deep enough. They liked Cephas. He was one of the original twelve. He knew what was important. He didn't go in for all the new stuff that Paul preached. He was conservative. And he was therefore the only one they would listen to. They wanted to hold to the traditional forms and taboos. And Peter was more apt to do that than Paul. In fact, Paul had actually taken Peter to task for trying to maintain what they no doubt felt to be an appropriate distance from those Gentile believers. They wanted little to do with those second-class Christians who ignored the traditions of their elders, so they formed the Cephas party. And then there were those who were of Christ. And that sounds good. But chances are the Christ party was the most separatist of all. They probably said something like, you're all wrong. We just follow Christ. Now that sounds right. It obviously wasn't wrong to say they belonged to Christ. But I suspect they acted as if Christ belonged to them. Sadly, that sounds like some in the Restoration Movement. You know, all too often... We wear the name Christian as if we were the only Christians. We forget that the founders of the movement said, we're not the only Christians, just Christians only. Well, I suspect the Christ party didn't believe that. They assumed their way was Christ's way. And everyone else was wrong. They were the real separatists of the bunch. So the church was divided. And Paul zeroes in on the horror of that situation by asking, has Christ been divided? They had assumed that one man or group could have all the truth about Christ and would listen to no one else. But no one man or group or theology can contain the fullness of Christ. They each had one little piece of Jesus. They needed each other to have all of him. Paul then gets to the heart of the matter. And he says, I wasn't crucified for you. Don't magnify me. Don't group around me. You are not my converts, I hope. D.L. Moody faced that same kind of situation in He saw through it. One day, it is said that a drunk came up to him on the streets of Chicago and said, Hey, aren't you Moody, the evangelist? I'm one of your converts. And Moody responded, You must be. You're surely not one of the Lord's. (laughs) Paul then said, You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, were you? In fact, I'm glad I didn't baptize many of you when I was there. You would just use your baptism by me as a badge to set yourself apart 
from those who weren't. Now, Paul's statement that he wasn't sent to baptize doesn't depreciate the importance of baptism. Others did the baptizing. He just didn't want people to identify with the baptizer. He wanted them baptized into Christ and nothing more. I think Jesus himself recognized that people could put undue importance on who baptized them. That could explain why he didn't baptize anyone, but had his disciples do the baptizing. And when Peter went to Caesarea, to Cornelius' household, he ordered the believers to be baptized, but he didn't do it himself. That's the point Paul is making. Christ is the one who was crucified for us. And he's the one into whom we are baptized. We are to be in fellowship with him and through him with one another. We're not to be tearing the church apart, magnifying men or positions more than Christ. We're to get back to the basics and find unity in the one who was crucified for us and in the power of the cross. Paul made it clear that he was sent to preach not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul wants us converted by the power of the cross and nothing else. He didn't come in cleverness of speech because he didn't want the cross to be emptied of its power. He didn't want to convert anyone. He wanted everyone to be converted by the power of the cross. He wanted the Holy Spirit to convert us through the truth about Christ. He didn't want to manipulate anyone to stir us into action through an emotional appeal. He wanted the truth of the cross to convict us and change us. And that's where the power is to unite as well. Jesus told us that if He would be lifted up, He would draw all men to Himself. And if we were all drawn to Him, we'll be drawn into fellowship with one another. You know, in marriage counseling, I sometimes suggest that there should be a triangle in a marriage. And they go, hmm? Yeah, we need the two who are getting married, the man and the woman, but we also need Christ. And if we just focus on each other, our relationship is always going to be, you know, really close, and then eh, something happens, you know, and you're apart, and so forth. But if we bring Christ in and set Him above the relationship, and both the husband and the wife focus on the Lordship of Christ. They look to Him for the example of how they are to care for each other 
and minister to each other. And they're empowered by Him to do it. They stay focused on Him as they grow closer to the one to whom they're focused. What happens to them? They get closer to each other as well. That's how we find unity in Christ. We focus on Him. And when we're focused on Him, we're drawn into fellowship with each other. If we're focused on Jesus, we'll not divide over style or pet doctrines or personalities or even what the preacher wears. We'll be one in the cross of Christ. The cross will be our focus and the cross will be our lifestyle. For as Jesus said, if we would be His disciples, we'd have to take up our cross and follow Him. Now, that does not mean we just have to bear a burden once in a while. You know, I've heard people say, well, that's just the cross i got to bear. That's not what He's talking about. The cross is an instrument of death. It's not an inconvenience. Taking up your cross means to die to self. And that's the only way to unity. We've got to be changed by the cross of Christ from selfish, rebellious, divisive people into a body that shares the mind of Christ. A body made up of people who are willing to empty themselves and take up the same cross that Jesus took up. Who are willing to die to self and then follow Him together. As we focus on the cross of Christ, lifted high in our midst, we will be drawn to Him and to one another. No man or position or new idea will be able to divide us. We will be united in Christ as together we stand beneath the cross of Jesus.